You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 9th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Just shut up. (laughs) Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very, 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 very much. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hey, Evan. I'm in a mood tonight, so forgive me. Well, that was some way to start the show. Evan, Evan, do you have today a special day of any kind or... Oh, well. You got um, anything? On this day, April 9th, 1959, the Mercury program, where NASA announced the selection of the United States' first seven astronauts, and they were dubbed the Mercury Seven on this day. Right stuff, baby. That's right. Almost 50 years ago. It's amazing. It's a good movie. All those guys saw aliens. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> some people, some people believe that. The Mercury 7? The Mercury 7. Is that kind of like the, the Oceanic 6? Or the SGU 5? <laughs> well, I'm back. Oh, yeah, that's right. You're back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm back, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we missed you. And Jay's back. Welcome back, Jay. Welcome, Welcome back, Jay. Back, Jay. Uh, so the, the shooting of the skeptologists went very well. Last week, we, hadn't, we had really just gotten started, but we uh, completed the shooting for the pilot uh, this is a skeptical reality TV show with myself and Michael Shermer, Phil Plate, Kirsten Sanford, Yao Man Chan, who we are interviewing later on in the show, and Mark Edward, with the host, Brian Dunning, who is also one of the producers, mm-hmm. along with Ryan Johnson of New Rule Productions. So, uh, it, as I said, it's a pilot, which is, you know, shooting a pilot's like playing the lottery. You know, there's so many pilots shot, it's an inherently unlikely thing to get picked up, but I mean, it just went as well as could be expected. Somebody's not practicing the secret. (laughs) (laughs) I'm practicing the realism. (laughs) No, actually, I I spoke with Ryan, you know, the producer about it, and everyone's very, very positive about it. You know, even like Phil said, this is my fifth pilot, which is interesting. Wow. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah, So it's like, in other words, the first four didn't pan out. So... Reinforcing the fact that it's an inherently unlikely thing to have, but even yeah. Phil by the end was like, "Wow, this is this is damn good." You yeah, know, that was the first a- thing I asked Phil was, "How did it compare to your other pilots?" And he said that this one was very professional and you know really well done. So I don't know I'm excited for you guys. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the general feeling, you know. Even among a bunch of realists and skeptics, there was this general sort of optimistic feeling that this is just too good not to happen. But of course, we know that that's uh, not so the you, way. You have a feeling, have right? A feeling. That you're you're going on a, a gut feeling. Yes, I'm just Steve. telling you that with the feeling of the quality, the production, the the chemistry between the people, everything was very positive. It still can not get picked up, you know. It still could not find somebody to pick it up, but. Uh, I think if anything, any hardcore skeptical show has a shot at getting on TV. This does. There you go, yeah. Well, can you tell us about what, what happens on the show a little bit? We investigate two topics, uh, wheatgrass, you know, the, the claims that are made for uh, the nutritional and other properties of wheatgrass juice, which is all the rage on the West Coast, I understand. I've had wheatgrass wheat smoothies. Yeah? Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Not it tastes like grass. All the rage. It tastes like crap. And the uh, instruments that ghost hunters use to uh, to do their ghost hunting. So you know the little temperature and EM meters and all that stuff. We you know go over how they actually work. 
Mm. Um, and what they do and do not show. So it's just a really, really good uh, good segment. It's an hour-long show. We shot like a full hour-long pilot. Part, one of the locations we shot on for like the, the intro-outro kind of segments was uh, the Mount uh, Wilson Observatory, which was gorgeous mm-hmm. and just an amazing place to shoot. I mean, it just... Is that your so Fortress authentic. of Solitude? That's our that's our Skeptolair, <laughs> the, the Mount Wilson Observatory. Oh, your Skeptolair? Yeah. <laughs> Fortress of Skeptitude. Fortress of Skeptitude. You feel like when you're up there, it's just clouds and mountains peeking up above the clouds, like a blanket of clouds. It was gorgeous. Wow. What was the elevation, Steve? 5,700 feet. Okay. Well, I actually got a, I actually got really dehydrated when I was up there. I forgot about the whole Dry. Al- altitude thing, and you just get dehydrated so quickly. What about the uh, the low air pressure? Was that noticeable at that height? Oh yeah. What was the That's relative humidity, Steve? Did you did you see any migratory robins? <laughs> I didn't, but I did take my first picture of a western scrub jay. Oh dear God! Oh sweet. I guess you're an eastern scrub jay, Jay. Um, I can also say that uh, in order to for this project to really get off the ground, we're really counting on the skeptical community, and that means all of our listeners out there, in order to convince some network that a skeptical show actually is watchable and has legs, we want to show that there's a built-in audience. There's a lot of people out there who would, are, would be fans of the show and want to watch it. So we've set up a uh, an email address skeptologists at newrule.com and we'll have that on our notes page and it is also on the forum so you could go there and we're trying to gather as many emails as possible from listeners who just have to say this is a great show I want to watch it put it on TV and then you know we want to go into you know have the producers go into whatever networks they're pitching to with a stack of emails of, of potential support to try to get over that hurdle you know to get, get a network to actually take us seriously so this show is not going to happen without all of our listeners out there getting involved. And you can go to the Skeptologist website, and we also have a page on Facebook that's getting a lot of, uh, a lot of activity. And there is a little 19-second video teaser on there. Um, it's not much because they just finished principal photography. They haven't really had time to do any post-production yet, but they threw oh, up wow. a really quickie 19-second teaser, so you could see that online. And there's a lot of photos from the shoot, too, which gives you an idea of the locations. I believe my cat is a fan of Skeptologists on Facebook. Is that right? Yeah. Steve, can we address this real quickly? I'd like to talk about the gender thing real quick. I re-listened to that segment three or four times. I just don't see where people thought that I was uh, you know, being hostile or anything towards people who have a vague gender in any way. I was being hostile to Rebecca. <laughs> It's I was true. being I was being hostile to the idea that I, I was some I was something that was so obvious to me. And I admit I'm wrong now, but I, it was very obvious to me, and that it sounded to me like everybody was just like dancing around that particular answer, which was it's a woman because she she had a baby or is pregnant. Um, you know, and I think we've all come to learn that it's a much more complicated issue. Um, and I really didn't mean to offend anyone. Apparently, some people got offended, and that that was absolutely not what was going on. Um, that being said, I think that it was actually pretty fun to listen to, and I think that um, Rebecca and I were just bickering with each other as we typically do uh, on and off the air. And <laughs> I agree, fireworks. Yeah, and you know, and I think that's what makes the show fun is that we can. I I know that I can disagree with you about things, and we can sometimes get emotional and clash, and we're still going to be buddies the next day. So. 
I mean, the next day we're arguing with each other on the show and we're sending each other smiley That's faces. True. Like it's <laughs> my favorite is the huggy bear. There's no real hostility. <laughs> the huggy bear. The huggy bear emoticon. Right. So let's uh, go on to some actual news items. We are in the midst of another psychic crackdown in the European Union. Evan is our man in the street reporting from the EU. Go. Here we go. So next month, they're going to repeal an act that is active, I guess, in the UK right now, but uh, it's called the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1952. What's happening is that uh, there is a new law coming along called the Consumer Protection Regulations Law, in which psychics and mediums and spiritualists are going to have to give disclosures and to vet their clients to see if anybody is vulnerable or has nervous dispositions or or any any problems which may be affected by the by the reading that by the reading that they get and the psychic can be held liable for for any potential you know sort of damages that are occurring to the people that they're giving these readings to you know plus it's it's also designed to protect the people who are getting the readings from from fraud uh from mm-hmm. uh, fraudulent psychics you know i i don't know how you differentiate one from the other in in that regard yeah well also the the law that's going to come into into play requires a disclaimer that these uh, treatments or recommendations or whatever are experimental. Right. They are scientific yes, tests. Yes, scientific experiment. The results of which cannot be guaranteed, to, to close off their quote. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've talked about this before when governments try to regulate psychics and psychic and, and the psychic industry. And you know, and there are several mm-hmm. there are several sides to this issue. Um, one that stands out to me is that this this gives psychics a level of validity that you know I don't think that they earned because I don't think what they're doing is is anything really. I don't I don't think it gives them any validity because it's not like they're um, getting certified. This is just a um, it's going to be a law like. We should clarify that they're repealing the old act and they're replacing it with a new one. Um, so the old one was the Fraudulent Mediums Act and the new one is called the Consumer Protection Regulations. And it's really just a set of laws that say if you can't prove that you're a psychic, then you have to have these disclaimers. And even if you have the disclaimers, though, you're still open to litigation from uh, people who you are conning. So, I mean, I don't think it gives them any validity, actually. I think this is a really good solution to, to the problem and makes it more likely that in the future we'll see, hopefully, some, uh, some skeptics set, uh, stepping up to prosecute fraudulent mediums. I think it, it, it is kind of tricky. This is because it's re, it's, a, it's a new law replacing an old law. We can compare the two, and I agree with Rebecca. This is a movement in the right direction. This is an improvement, mainly because the old law was so bad. Uh, but it, it is always tricky when the government tries to regulate mediums in any way because it's you start drawing lines and making distinctions between like fraudulent and genuine, etc. And since the whole thing is fraudulent, it's it's kind of hard to do this. But what this does do is it, re, it essentially removes prior protections from mediums, alleged mediums and psychics, and they're very unhappy about it, which is a good, I think, indicator that this is probably moving in the right direction. One of the comments by by one of the psychics, her name was uh, uh, Carol McEntee-Taylor. She's a spiritualist healer in Essex. 
and uh, she's formed a she's formed a group a, a, a group of skeptics that are that are fighting this legislation and and fighting for different regulations for 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 psychics and mediums and so forth. And here's what she says: she says no other religion has to do what they have to do. How can you tell if somebody is vulnerable? Would you have to ask them if they felt vulnerable or had mental health issues or a nervous disposition? Um, I think it's really interesting that she that she calls this a religion, right? I think you're right that they're going that that is a defense they'll make. Um, the only thing I'd add to that is that this isn't a new thing. That's this isn't um, any kind of forethought on their part to set this up. Spiritualism has been considered a religion uh, for you know a century now, at least. It's what um, Arthur Conan Doyle, for instance, uh, was was into, and they have churches, and I think they're much more common right now in the UK than they are here in the US these days. Um, but they are actually churches where um, people will go and instead of your average preacher, reverend or whatever, um, the leader of the church would be a psychic or a group of psychics, quotes there, of course, who would uh, impress, you know, basically do cold reading. It's basically like a, you know, your average psychic show and they solicit donations, uh, and that's the way they make their living. So it really has been put forth like a religion. And, you know, you can argue that all of the TV psychics we see today, um, all of, all of the, the fake psychics who are conning people out of money these days got their start as a religion, as, as a spiritualist religion. So. Mm-hmm. But one of the things by my reading, one of the things this law does is says, you know, if you are giving a reading and you are getting from that person money, whether it's called a gift or a donation or a payment, it doesn't matter anymore. You can't hide behind saying, oh, we're not charging for this service. They're just happen to be giving me a gift. And it's unrelated to the, the reading that they're not going to be able to hide behind that anymore. That if the, any, if money changes hands, these rules these regulations apply. Yeah, and I think it's funny because I think in that case, the psychics actually do have a good point in that um, other religions are going to be affected by that if if that law is, is applied across the board. If you look at um, faith healing, uh, things like that, where churches, you know, the where the crux of a church's income, where their popularity is coming from things like faith healing – Technically, a law like that could affect a more "quote unquote" traditional style church. So, in in that way, the psychics actually have kind of a point. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. This is one of the the hairy gray zones that is completely unavoidable. If you're going to have absolute freedom of religion, then there's just no way to avoid the fact that people are going to that churches and religions are going to provide religious services and that members of that faith of the church are going to be donating or giving them money. Um, when does that become a fee for service as opposed to just the faithful donating and the 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 priests or the equivalent of that providing a religious ceremony or service? And what sh- what relationship should the government have towards that? And that's so the, the psychics are, are essentially migrating over to, to that end of the spectrum in order to get away from being regulated as psychics, but it's really just going to be exchanging sort of one mess of, of rules for another. The next news item has to do with British physicist Peter Higgs, whose name is famous because he came up with the whole idea of the Higgs boson. Uh, and he is claiming, or recently 
uh, during an interview, said that he thinks that the so-called God particle will be found soon by the Large Hadron Collider, which we just discussed, I believe, last week. Bob, tell us more about this. Sure. Uh, this is famous physicist Peter Higgs, and he was quoted recently, as Steve was saying, that it's claiming that he believes proof will soon exist of a force that imbues all objects in the universe with mass, making life, among other things, possible. If you've been a physics celibate for the past few years, I'm referring to the quest for the Higgs particle um, at the soon-to-be-opened LHC, or Large Hadron Collider, a particle he prophesied over 40 years ago to some derision from his colleagues at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research. He told journalists recently, the likelihood is that the particle will show up pretty quickly. I'm more than 90% certain that it will. About 15 years ago, physicist Leon Lederman wrote a book called The God, the God Particle about Higgs and his quest. And the name stuck, uh, to, much to the chagrin of Peter Higgs. Uh, it embarrasses me, he said uh, in Geneva this week at a news conference. He, he continued, although I'm not a believer myself, it's a misuse of terminology that might offend some people. Uh, Lederman had an interesting story. Uh, he explained in his book why uh, he chose the God Particle as, as a nickname. Uh, and this is a quote from his book. He said that this boson is so central to the state of physics today, so crucial to our understanding of the structure of matter, yet so elusive that I have given it a nickname, the God Particle. Why God, God Particle? Two reasons. One, the publisher wouldn't let us call it the goddamn particle. <laughs> uh, th- <laughs> I like it. that might sassy. be, yeah. Though that might be a more appropriate title given its villainous nature and the expense it is causing. And two, there's a connection of sorts to another book, a much older one. And then Lederman then quotes the Tower of Babel story and the dispersion of mankind that it caused. And he explains that uh, the finding, that finding the Higgs would be like undoing the confusion caused by, uh, by the Babel story. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's really literary the way he's using it. Yeah. But there's, there's some confusion about the Higgs and, um, it took some reading for me to, to, to uh, elucidate some of it. Some of it's kind of confusing. Some people refer to it as f- a force, but others object to that because it, it cannot accelerate a particle or transfer energy. I, I think it's more appropriately called the Higgs field, and that's what, what Higgs re- has referred to it, um, and that's probably what he would prefer over a God mm-hmm. particle anyway. And I, so I think this Higgs field is, is really the main player here. This is, this is what's really giving the mass uh, to, all, to all the particles in the universe. Uh, now, the Higgs particle itself, it's not a misnomer, but it's more precisely referred to as the Higgs boson. Uh, you come across that a lot. Uh, bosons are really cool. Force-carrying particles are bosons, like photons, which carry the electromagnetic force, or gluons, which mediate the strong force. You can also think of um, this boson as a, as a dense area in the field, uh, in the Higgs field, like, kind of like a water droplet in, in, you know, in water vapor. The Higgs field can really be um, – it can't really be detected. I don't think there's any direct way that physicists have been able to figure out to directly um, detect the Higgs field. But the Higgs boson, they believe, can be detected. And the thinking is that if you can find one, then it's easy to believe the other. So in this sense, the boson is kind of like the herald of the field, uh, kind of like how the silver surfer is the herald of Galactus. Like how I threw that in there? That was good. Very nice. There you go. So Peter Higgs described matter as weightless at the moment of the Big Bang, and then once the Higgs field reached a non-zero value and matter started moving through it, then everything is kind of suddenly acquired mass. He describes it as the field somehow sticking to particles, although I'm not sure. And I found that 
repeated in many, many websites, somehow the, the field kind of adhering in a sense to, to the particles as they, as they pass through it, making them heavy, kind of like wading through molasses. And if this didn't happen, matter would have floated free in space and stars and planets would never have formed and obviously life never would have, mm-hmm. never would have arisen. So as not to raise hopes too high, Higgs also said that the appearance of the boson may hide uh, in the terabytes of data that the LHC collects. It could take a long time for the analysis to find it. Uh, he said, I, I just hope they find it. And if they do it quickly, that would be just great. Imagine the first week, bam, you know, yeah. wow, it looks like we found it. That'd yeah. be great. Hit me. Higgs is 78. And he is certainly hoping – he's waited 40-plus years, and he's certainly hoping that they find it you know, while he's still around. Uh, he says right. he, he would like to see it identified before his 80th birthday in 2009. And he says, if it, if it doesn't, I shall be very, very puzzled. That's a true scientist. Yep. What a, what a great ending for his career. Uh, if they do, do find it when, when he's still alive, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Because that's, that's the, the final, that is the last particle uh, um, that the standard model has predicted that, that has not been observed. So this is the, that would be the end of a, of a great, great voyage of discovery. The whole yep. standard theory has been is magnificent. And if they could just finally find that last particle, how awesome would that be? Right. So when we, when we fire up the LHC, either... We'll destroy the universe in a giant black hole, or we'll find the Higgs boson, one or the other. Fun. (laughs) Either one would be cool. (laughs) True. You're kidding, right, Steve? (laughs) But last week we talked about the fact that some some loser is suing CERN, telling them that they shouldn't turn it on because it's going to cause a black hole or could destroy the universe. Or make strangelets. But there's there's nothing to that. It's much more likely that we'll find the Higgs boson. I'm surprised that no one has, has taken... That whole plot line to the movies, you know, they turn on this enormous new collider and, you know, like a, whole, a wormhole. Well, the movie wouldn't <laughs> last very crazy. long, would it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, they made a two-hour <laughs> movie out of an 11-second earthquake, so I'm <laughs> sure they could do it. That's true. No, I saw a movie, Jay, that dealt with that. Bruce Willis uh, could swing in and <laughs> destroy the... sci-fi channel-esque <laughs> piece of crap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, now that you brought it up, we'll, next Hollywood will make three movies about it next year. I can't wait. One more news item. This has to do with the Monty Hall problem, uh, which is always fascinating. We talked about this before. The Monty Hall problem is the following, uh, named after the game show host of Monty Hall, the game show host (laughs) of Let's Make a Deal. And this is kind of loosely based on what would happen on the show. There's three doors. Behind one door is a car. Behind two doors are goats. You get to choose one of the doors. Uh, Once you choose a door, Monty Hall will open one of the two doors that you did not choose, and you have to know that Monty Hall knows where the car is and knows where the goats are. So he always opens a door with a goat behind it, always. So now there's two doors left, the one you chose and the door that you did not chose that Monty Hall did not open. The question is, are you better off sticking with your choice, switching to the, to the other door, or does it not make a difference? Flawed human intuition says, well, it shouldn't make a difference. There's two doors, it's 50-50. But in actuality... The, the, uh, you should always switch because that bumps up your chance to two-thirds. I still don't get it. it the, I think the best way to explain it really quickly is that when you choose a door, yeah. there's a one-third chance that you are um, correct. And because Monty Hall knows where the goats and cars are, no matter what 
your choice is he's going to open up a door with a goat. So when he does that, that adds no information. There's no new information added. So there's still a one-third chance that you've won. Your, your chance did not go up to 50-50 because no matter what your original choice, he can open up a door with a goat behind it. And therefore, because you're... You, unless, you pick, unless you pick the successful no, door. No, either way, Jay, there's two goats. If you pick the car, he opens up a door with a goat. If you pick the goat, he shows the other goat. Either way, he shows a goat. So right. you, what if you, I want the goat? You, your initial choice, one-third. The other choice that he didn't open is two-thirds. So you always switch to the two-thirds probability. But anyway, we've okay. been over this exhaustively. Search for the thread on the forum. Don't write right. us any emails. We're right. You're wrong. <laughs> there's no the ambiguity. There's, there's no ambiguity. That wow. is it. I mean, that's, that's, that's it. the answer. Seriously, I mean, that is it. And this has tripped up it's not professional a ma- mathema- mathematicians. Seriously, it's a totally counterintuitive problem, but it's been worked over every way. There's a website you can go to where you could run the Monty Hall problem 100 times and convince yourself that it's true. Do that before emailing us. Now, here's the cool thing. <laughs> Here's the quote. Holy shit. An economist, M. Keith Chen, uh, has written a paper essentially saying that the last 40 years of uh, choice theory has been flawed because they've essentially been committing the Monty Hall fallacy and didn't realize it. So, this is the way this research works. Um, let's say you have, uh, you're working with chimpanzees and you offer them of different colored M&Ms red, blue, and green. Mm-hmm. The the question is if you if you give them a, a choice between the red and the blue M M&M, and M, and let's say they choose the red one. Now you offer them a choice between the blue and the green M M&M, and M, and two thirds of the time they choose the green M M&M. and M. Now and the researchers have concluded from this that by when the chimpanzee chooses red, mm. they are rejecting the blue M M&M. and M. And then when they're next given the choice between blue and green, they prefer to choose green blue. because they're rationalizing their rejection of the blue and, and convincing themselves, well, they, don't, they never liked blue all along. So by forcing them to reject blue earlier in order to resolve that um, cognitive dissonance, they, they actually then convince themselves that they never liked blue, so they'll be more likely to choose green. Right? Forty years of research essentially based on that model and showing that conclusion, that the choices we make affect our, even if they were arbitrary, affect our, our later choices and our likes and dislikes. I wish I got paid to give monkeys M&Ms. It's a, a fun or? job, isn't it? Mm. But, but Chen points out, and it actually took me a while to figure out exactly what he was talking about, because the article just refers to the Monty Hall problem, but I, I had to really figure out what's the connection. He says that statistics alone and in the exact statistics that, are, that derive from the Monty Hall po- uh, problem, predict that he would uh, choose the green two-thirds of the time, even if there were no effect on the psychology. Do you guys get that? Do you think you could see immediately why that is the case? Yeah, I mean, those monkeys hate those freaking blue no, M&Ms. That's, that's, he's saying that's not true. That is just purely statistical, at least with this studies. There may be other studies that show that. He's not making any comments about whether or not that is true, just saying that, that statistically these, studies are, these particular studies are flawed. Here's why. If you do the same thing, the same kind of breakdown or analysis that you do with cars and goats, if you do that with the permutations of uh, likes and dislikes. So let's say if every, each chimpanzee has a preference of most to least, red, blue, green, red, green, blue, you know, blue, red, green, blue, green, red, right? Every permutation. And then you select out those monkeys that prefer red over blue. Mm. 
right? Because that's what you're doing. You're taking just just mm-hmm. the monkeys or the chimpanzees. I know I know chimpanzees are not monkeys. You don't really do the research with either or. You take out just just the the chimps that prefer red over blue, and if and then two thirds of those chimps will prefer green to blue, and only one third will prefer blue to green. If every chimp has some order of preference of the M and M's, because there are now two permutations where green is above blue in the order, but only one where blue is above green. Once you've already selected for those where um, red is over blue, does that make sense? Yes. I know it's, so, it, it takes a minute. It takes a minute, but it's like it's just like the Monty Hall problem in that way. Once you if you count up all the permutations and you calculate your odds based upon that, there's a two third chance that the green will be preferred over blue if you select for those chimps who prefer red over blue. Even without affecting their, without affecting psychologically their their preferences. So what's wrong with the blue M and M? Right, exactly. <laughs> I didn't get you on that one. <laughs> okay, so and you're telling us about this because it's light. cool because it's the Monty Hall problem. It just keeps cropping up, and it just shows you that 40 years of professional researchers could be have missed this statistical anomaly, and it did not account for it in their research. Well, anyway, wrap your mind around that, and then let's go on to some questions and emails. The first email actually comes from the boards from VJ, and he is responding to our tantric killing segment from last week. And he writes, I think that the joking and laughing about what the tantric was saying was a little misguided. To the Western ear, it does indeed sound silly. However, I believe that he was speaking Sanskrit, and his audience will have been very used to hearing the language spoken as it is widely used in Eastern religions, Hindu and Buddhist, etc., uh, ceremonies. So even if it was just mumbo-jumbo, it plays psychologically on his target audience. It's actually a piece of clever manipulation. Think what would happen to a devout Catholic if his priest cursed him in Latin and make it known that he was cursing in Latin. You'd get a similar effect to what he was trying to do there. Very interesting. I mean, yeah, we, you know, in the, uh, the tantric killing Kill ceremony, the, the, uh, the incantations do sound silly to English-speaking you know, Western ear. And at one point, one piece of it was killy-killy. I mean, how can you resist that killy-killy <laughs> in a killing ritual? Right. But that's, that's a point I hadn't thought of, and that's, that's a really good point to bring up, that uh, in that culture, Sanskrit has the same kind of cultural gravitas Cachet, that yeah. Latin does in our culture, pun intended, then I could absolutely see how that would have a psychological effect because Latin is cool. And if you like, cast a spell in Latin, it automatically sounds 100 times cooler than just saying it in English or Pluribus in a modern language. Don't you Steve, think? I, uh, I, yeah. I ran this past our resident Indian skeptic on Skeptic, mm-hmm. uh, Masala Skeptic. She's fantastic. She says, I don't think he was actually speaking Sanskrit, a variation on it, maybe. The tantrics chanted... Om, linga, 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 etc. Followed by ever-changing cascades of strange words and sounds with the speed increasing hysterically. Definitely not coherent, although his chants appear to be based on some common chants, including Om, which is really the go-to chant for us, she says. Right. But she says that he's right that these chants are very real and very common. His chanting is in line with several religious chanting, and chanting like this is common in several Indian religions. In fact, you hear Edamaruko speaking it, speaking to it and calling it Jantar Mantar, which is the Hindi version of Hocus Pocus or Mumbo Jumbo. Mm-hmm. And he's right about the analogy to Latin and other ancient languages and curses. There's power in what people don't understand, and I think yeah. it's equivalent. Yeah. So maybe he's yeah, not really pulling it off. 
uh, and it's sort of right. pseudo-Sanskrit, if you will, which means it's kind of like the spells in Harry Potter. You know, right? It's, right. It sounds Latin-ish, but it's not really Latin. But it is meant to sound to make it sound more magical and 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 deep. You know, and, and it works. We are culturally right. programmed to hear that. The the, uh, the 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 image that popped into my head when I read this for the first time was the wizard in in Dragon Slayer casting his spells in Latin because I love that actor and he had like this deep voice and he encanted these Latin spells perfectly. It sounds, you know, it does just sound uh, much more profound to a Westerner who's programmed by the culture. So anyway, I thought that was just a really interesting point and that just the the cultural differences are um, interesting. My my point though was, I mean, obviously the words to the... uh to the English ear sounds kind of does sound kind of silly, but my my whole point in in bringing in the Avada Kedavra from uh, from Potter and stuff yeah. and saying how it's silly. My point was that just the idea. I don't care what the word the specific words are. Just the idea that you've got death words, words that can kill somebody, is it, just ludicrous. And that's, well, yeah, that's the superstition aspect of it. That's right. That's what I wanted to drive home was that just that you've got these death words is just so silly, so ridiculous. I agree, Bob. I totally agree. Death words, come on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's what we were talking well, about last week. This is a completely tangential point. I just thought it was, it was kind of an interesting cultural aside. Right. I always kind of thought, you know, especially during like when someone's reciting some type of Latin-esque spell or whatever that they're summoning something to do their yeah. bidding mm-hmm. you know what i mean well yeah that's that's what the, the tantrics believe is that they're they're funneling the energy uh, by, right. by using these these chants these these mantras that yeah. they're actually channeling the energy the divine energy that also reminds me you saying that of the the exorcist the original exorcist remember that movie when the little girl yeah who's you know, possessed by a demon in the movie, speaks in Latin. The creep level goes up in order of magnitude, yeah. right? When she does it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Well, actually, I want to get to our interview because we have uh, a lot of good content with Yao Man, so let's go to that now. Joining us now is Yao Man Chan. Yao Man, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. Uh, Yao Man is most famous for being one of the favorite contestants on the Survivor show. Um, so, Yao Man, why don't you first just tell us about how you got on Survivor? How did that happen? I was actually one of the people they recruited to come on the show. Ah. They wanted a more diverse cast. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for, for the last uh, you know eight years uh, since Survivor has been on, they get a lot of uh, applicants who are sort of uh, young, buff males. <laughs> Right, and they wanted uh, and young white twenty-something males, and so they wanted Asians. They wanted some older people to be on. So one of the, I guess one of their uh, production people decided that they should canvas you know uh, websites of games that like Asians play. Mm-hmm. So I am in table tennis. I am on uh, you know a, a certified coach and an umpire of a, for USA Table Tennis. Cool. So someone saw my name there and gave me a call and asked me if I've heard of Survivor. And I said, yes, but I don't watch much TV. However, I did watch the very first season, which was in uh, Borneo, and I grew up in Borneo. So that got them really interested, and they asked me to apply, so I did. 
So with me as an older Asian, they got two for one, right? And you were actually you were actually cast on the show because they were looking. <laughs> they were for, looking, for a type. and basically casting means that they try and find the people they want and ask them to apply. I mean, you don't automatically get on. You still have to put in the application. Yeah, yeah. Right. So so instead of sending your application in and be part of the you know twenty thousand pile of application, you get to send it to a particular person who's mm-hmm. going to look at it right away. Mm-hmm. So your chance they, of getting on is better. Do they make you take a physical or do any kind of... Um... At the last stage of the selection process is a 10-day interview process. Whoa. You're sequestered oh. in a hotel in Santa Monica mm-hmm. for 10 days. Mm-hmm. And we're given physical, we're given psychological exam, we're given you know psychological profile test, personality profile test, and then we got interviewed by every producer and Mark Burnett, who's the executive producer, and Jeff Probst, who's the the uh, host, and so on. So do you do you get to know the cameramen at all since they're there with you the whole time? Uh, well, towards the end, we sort of know them, but they never really interact with us. And we, uh, as part of our contract, we're, we're, we're expressly forbidden to play with the camera or play with other, uh, to play with the producers, for example. So we're supposed to play with each other, with, with the other, we have the cast, the other contestants. So yeah. when the producers ask us questions, uh, in the confessionals and so on, we're supposed to tell them, you know, the truth and so on, what we're plotting and so on. Because basically they're trying to, create a story with no script. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. everything you see on the show, the things we say, nothing is scripted. No, and nothing is repeated. We're not prompted to say anything. So for them to put together a story, the viewer can know what's going on. We have to be honest about our plots and scheming and so on so that they can follow the story. Right. Otherwise, you know, the viewers will be lost and things happen and they don't know what happened. Now, you were very much uh, put into the role on that show as the mild man the mild-mannered science geek. Would you agree with yeah. that? I'm, I was the lovable old geek from Borneo. Yeah. The lovable <laughs> old geek. And they actually played up that aspect of your character on the show. Yes. Yes. So I think, you know, they sort of, uh, with the personality profile test, I think we took like two or three different ones. They sort of have an uh, overall uh, idea of what your main characteristic is, right? Whether you're going to be the loudmouth jerk or the flirt or whatever. So they, they basically concentrate on that aspect of your personality. Mm-hmm. Did you anticipate that as a result of your appearance on The Survivor and the character uh, that you played, which is yourself, I mean, you know, I right. spent a week with you last week, that's who you are, um, that you would basically become famous for being the mild-mannered, lovable geek? No, in fact, uh, going in there, I, I am, you know, so, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm you know, not the potty animal, I'm sort of... You, You're like the flirt, right? You, you no, know, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so uh, I thought that maybe I'll, I'm going to be the first guy to get booted out. Usually the old guys don't last very long. And then uh, when I uh, met Gary in my seat in the Fiji season, he's like, you know, another 100 pounds overweight and he's a year older than me. I thought, oh, maybe I'll be the second guy who gets booted out. <laughs> so uh, after I made it past a few episodes, I begin to have a little bit more confidence and say, hey, you know, maybe I can go up against these guys, right? And so I was very surprised how far I ended and and what the edit looks like. Because I, the first season, I had no idea how they produced this show. We were right, completely right. in the dark, right? 
So I have no idea. And so it's after the season, after being on the island for six weeks, then I realized, and, and, and then watching the show, because when we saw it on TV, that's the first time I've seen it, how we look. Because mm-hmm. we never get a preview or anything like that. Okay. Then I realized, ah, this is what they're doing. They are editing, you know, to make a story and they're enhancing your particular personality. Then I realized what, what the whole technique is. So are you really left alone there for the most part? I mean, other than the challenges and all that stuff. Oh, yes. Uh, we always have cameras on us. Sometimes they're far away from us and sometimes they're right up in our face. But, you know, we were left to our own accord. I mean, we do things and then the camera will follow us. And Okay. I see. But one of the one of the things I loved, Yao Man, was is when you you use science to uh, to achieve you know to achieve a goal. Like I, I remember one that really stands out in my mind. You have these big brawny muscular guys trying to break open a crate of supplies, and you walk in there and you do it in five seconds. Great, you, I'm so, dropping a, a uh, corner. Physics. Right, right, and it it was great. I just loved it. And, you, I, I and the other one was the uh, the uh, bow and arrow and the bow pipe and the yep. javelin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where I made it, none of them ever made it. Yeah, that was the other thing. It's like, uh, first of all, the, the javelin that we were given were not real javelins. I mean, they were like fishing spears. And fortunately, I got to go second last. The people who went before me, the the javelin either didn't stick when it gets to the target, or it didn't even make the target at all. Right. Mm-hmm. So when it was my turn, I decided to do a running start. Because I reason that it's difficult to aim if you do a running start. However, since nobody even made the target, if I do a running start and I'm able to get the, the spear to stick anywhere in the target, I don't have to aim for the bullseye. I will get a point. So right. as it is, I'm the only one who scored any points there. I see. Yeah, so that was very strategic. I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. It really sounds like you, you beat Braun with, with your brain. Exactly, because the no, going in there right off the bat, I know that muscle for muscle, I have. there's no way I could compete with these guys, right? Yeah. And so I have to use whatever resources I have to, 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 go, to go far. That's why you're now a legend among geeks. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, tell me a little bit about what life was like after Survivor. You, you were a little bit taken aback by your fame. Yeah, I, I was uh, very much, because since I didn't watch the show uh, before that, I, I didn't know how popular it was. So, so going back to work, and I work in university, and my colleagues are too hoity-toity to watch TV, so I didn't get <laughs> bothered by them, you know. And so when the cast announcement came out, suddenly, you know, people were recognizing me in the streets and so on. So it took a while to get used to it. Uh, the, the first time when I was, you know, crossing the street and someone you know, yell out to me, hi, Yao Man, and I look over now, Yao Man is not your common name like, you know, John or Paul or Peter, right? Not and so, anyway. anybody who calls my name, uh, usually is someone I know well or have met me before, so I look over and look at this person, I go, oh my goodness, I have Alzheimer's, I cannot remember his name, <laughs> trying to think, where did I meet him before? And then it took me a few, you know, a little bit before I realized, oh, he knows my name, it's okay that I don't know his name. Mm-hmm. You finally realize he knew you from the show. Right, right, yeah. But that can't be the weirdest thing that's happened to you. Like, What's the strangest thing that some random person has done? Oh, the weirdest thing was, uh, it was a scary thing. I, I, was, I flew, it was uh, in April, last April. Uh, I went to Columbus, Ohio. And because the show's not as popular here, so I only, you know, run into people who know me, like, you know, a couple times a day at most. 
but as soon as I get off the Columbus airport, every hundred yards or so, I was stopped <laughs> by crowds of people coming up to me. Wow. So that took some getting used to. And there are some people, you know, who yell out from movies far away and just screaming, Ah, you're there, yo, man! <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you had some uh, offers to do shows and programs yeah, I, I've got I have gotten offers to do uh, you know endorse products and so on and and go on different types of show mostly reality shows you know mm-hmm. really uh, and I I was really not not into that I I didn't get into this uh, to to be on TV or to change my career I mean seriously I was in it for the million dollars mm-hmm. I think that's the only reason you should go into these kinds of shows. Uh, so I have not been interested in that, and you know, I I decide that I pretty much turn everybody down. But there was one show that that you didn't turn down that you actually. <laughs> why don't you tell us about that? Right. So uh, so when when people when other you know, producers and so on call me about getting a show, I say no, I'm not really interested. However, there's there's a show that I I would like to go on, and that's the MythBusters. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't go on there, you know, because they are owned by ABC and it's a different, you know, uh, so on and so forth. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I guess after the word got out that I'm not interested, you know, people stopped calling me, which is fine. So when I came back from this uh, last, uh, the filming, the filming of this last uh, Micronesia season was from uh, last week of October through the first week of December. So when I came back, I have to catch up on, you know, on all my podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to yours, uh, the, I think it was <laughs> in January, where you interviewed, uh, in this podcast, you interviewed uh, Brian Dunning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned his podcast that he's looking for someone to do, you know, a scatology show. Right. So I also listen to his, but so I have to quickly go to his and listen to all that. And then I go, that's the show I would want to go to. <laughs> Uh, and so that's why I sent him my sent in my application and say you know here I am so and I'm glad I got picked. Wow, that's a, that's a that actually pretty cool. To see, podcasting can actually enhance your life. Yeah, <laughs> right. I just assumed uh, Denning contacted you. I had no idea that you contacted him. That's great. I contacted him. Yeah, based on his you know his podcasting, he's looking for someone you know different talents for his show and so on. Yeah, that's right. Actually, you know, Brian Dunning and Ryan Johnson, who are the producers of The Skeptologist, right. con- uh, they contacted the other five cast members, including me, but you were the only one that actually responded to the casting call, as it were, and sent in an application right. that and they maybe, wanted. Maybe. I mean, I'm not thinking you were the only one who sent one in. You were the only one that, uh, I mean, it was, it was a no-brainer, you know, that when oh, you applied to, to bring him onto the right. show. We had to send in a, a, a tape and so on, too, so... Right. Did you guys have fun doing the show? Like, give us, tell us about it, guys. Uh, let me tell you, uh, hanging out with you guys, with Steve and Phil and uh, Kirsten and Michael, is so much different. I mean, the intellectual level compared to the guys I hang out with in Survivor, right? Mm-hmm. It's day and night. You, you guys are at least a few thousand points uh, combined total, <laughs> IQ points higher than the other guys. <laughs> when I hang out with, with the Survivor crowd, you know, all they talk about is, you know, the best. Hair removal salon and so on. I mean, it's so much <laughs> different. Whereas, I mean, you hang around Phil and so on. I mean, with, with Steve, Steve, you you talk about neurology and psychology and so on. I mean, everything is so much more interesting. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, it was a, it was it was a good crew. I mean, everybody was uh, totally into the whole you know skeptical purpose of the show and. Right. 
it was a tremendous amount of fun hanging out with yeah. Yaman and I were actually roommates for the week, so we got to talk a lot. But, oh, cool! I didn't know that. But just everybody was awesome. It was a great cast. I think you know we all you all pretty much fit together. So yeah, very complimentary. So okay. there was chemistry among among the cast, and you guys think that there, there's a potential here, huh? I think there is, yeah. That would be fantastic. So actually, th- this leads into uh, so the next thing I want to discuss. So your role on the show, you know, we obviously put six skeptics together. We had to have different focuses, different subspecialties so that, you know, we, we each bring something unique to the show. Your background is as an engineer. Can, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yes. your background? Well, I started out as a physicist. Mm-hmm. So I majored in physics uh, at MIT. Wow. And for graduate school, I decided I want to study particle physics. Mm-hmm. So this was 1974, 75. So I ended up in a uh, graduate school in uh, UC Santa Barbara. But our experiment was in Fermi Lab in Batavia, Illinois. There was a monopole. We are looking for monopoles and quarks and all that. But I got more and more interested in the instrumentation part of it, designing the detectors and so on. It was also the start of the uh, microprocessor revolution, you know, the Motorola 6800 and, the, you know, the, the MOSFET chips and so on. And I got really a lot more interested in the electronics and the, the, the detectors and instrumentation part of it than the physics. So I switched to uh, instrumentation. Mm-hmm. At that time, uh, Santa Barbara had a program called, they just started it, called Masters in Scientific Instrumentation. There was no PhD program yet for that. So I just got burnt out doing uh, physics and decided to do instrumentation. And from there, my first job was with at the, in Boulder, uh, University of Colorado, at their Joint Institute for Laboratory Astrophysics, and I was the, uh, running the uh, electronics lab. Again, mm-hmm. designing specialized instrumentations, transducers, and so on for all their experiments. So that's where my expertise is in. So you must have really come in handy then at the uh, for one of the topics for the first episode was the the, uh, the the tools and instruments of the ghost hunters. You were uh, perfect for that. Yeah, looking at the tools that they were using. I mean, they, those guys basically have no idea what they were using, what these things, what the uh, meters they were using were actually measuring. I mean, right. it's funny. And that led because. Computer chips essentially took over scientific instrumentation. Your your job essentially evolved into being a computer engineer. Right. So because of that, we did the sort of uh, eventually you can buy most of the stuff. You know, I was designing lots of computer interface instrumentation interface, but uh, slowly it became sort of the the industry has matured to the point where you know anything you want to measure, anything you want to do, you can buy it. And but at the same time, the computer network was growing so. Uh, when I was uh, recruited by UC Berkeley to come out and, and run the electronics sh- uh, shop here, within a few years, we were already transitioning to computer support and putting together the network and so on. So I put mm-hmm. the network together uh, for the college chemistry in 1984. And so, so transitioned from there to, uh, to computers. But uh, we still have the electronics shop taking care of, you know, old, you know, old instruments and mm-hmm. things like that. And I still get consulted. So every now and then, I still get consulted by some of the researchers when they are using a piece of uh, equipment, which to them, unfortunately, nowadays, for a lot of students, is a black box. They have no idea what's inside. Mm-hmm. Right? They put the sample in, they press the button, and out comes the reading. Well, when the reading comes out, not what they thought, you know, if they're really diligent about it, they need, really need to say, Hey, how is it measuring? What is it? What are the physical properties this you know 
this instrument is really measuring and am I seeing the right thing? Am I interpreting the data? So they still come to me for some consultation in that, in right. that area. And, and that black box mentality is partly what leads to ghost hunters, you know, walking around with right. meters. When the light bleeps, you got a ghost, right? I mean, yeah, that's about right. the level yeah. of their understanding of that yeah, equipment. Exactly. And these people, the mass chromatographs, I mean, you know, it's like, you need to understand, if you really want to interpret today, you need to know what's inside, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, the iron gauges or pH meters and so on, they press the button and they read the pH. Well, when they read some outrageous number, they have no idea they're reading. There's something wrong with this pH meter because mm-hmm. there's no way it could read this way. So you have your science geek credentials, but have you always been skeptical? Yes, uh, I have been always skeptical only because I'm Chinese and in science. You know, the Chinese are a very superstitious bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Really, really superstitious. I mean, the whole life revolves around superstitions of all kinds. You know, the numbers, you know, certain numbers are good luck because it sounds good. Certain numbers are bad luck because it sounds like death or sickness and so on. So uh, anyone who, who grew up in China or in the Chinese community are surrounded by this superstition, feng shui and all that. And so, but, you know, as someone who, who's interested in the science, when you put two to two together and say, wait, it couldn't be that way, right? Mm-hmm. And so I begin to be quite skeptical of a lot of things. And, you know, it, it's tough when you're growing up uh, in a Chinese family where you're not supposed to argue with your parents, right? So when your mom tells you, no, you cannot wash your hair today because it's a certain time of the month of the moon phase and so on, you go, Really, what has that to do with anything, right? Mm-hmm. And so you sort of go along with it and you, you, you think about all these things and, and eventually you go, no, there's nothing to it, but, you know, if people want to believe it, if it's just, if it becomes a sort of a national uh, cultural thing. But some of the things are really silly. Uh, numbers, for example, you know, number, the number four sounds like death. Yeah. So you don't want to have license plates that have fours in it, right? The number eight is good luck. So if you have a license plate in California, you, you can get a uh, specialized license plate, right? So the numbers like 8888, you can, you, they bid on these things for thousands of dollars. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then the Chinese medicine, I mean, yeah, some of it may have something in it, but the rest is all superstition. So you have, I, I, I have to keep thinking about it just skeptically. You know, how these things work, they really work, or is it just part of the superstitious way of, of looking at life? So choosing a career in science forced you, in a way, to question the superstitions of your culture. And because it was so intense, you know, you basically had to become a skeptic in order to avoid cognitive yeah. dissonance, I guess. And, and not only that, to be, skeptic, to be a skeptic and also have enough... Uh, background information to defend it because you know you right. always get confronted you know and with relatives uh, why don't you think this way so, well this is why I don't think it's necessary to do this well you know uh, one of the oh, one of the superstition is that a New Year's Day you're not supposed to sweep the floor mm-hmm. because you because New Year's Day is when the bad luck from last year is going out the door and the good luck's coming in so if you sweep the floor you may inadvertently sweep the good luck out <laughs> And so you have a bad year. So you get yelled at by your parents when you want to, you know, don't sweep the floor and so on. You know, and I, you know, and I told my mom once, I said, you know, how could that be true? Bill Gates, I'm sure he didn't know when his New Year's. I'm sure his housekeepers must have swept his floor on New Year's Day, not knowing. And he's still a billionaire, right? I mean, just, 
so you have to think of these examples of, you know, go up against them when they confront you or things like that. Were you ever able to convince any of your relatives, Yao Man, uh, that... Uh, yes, I, I was surprised my mom is starting to get less superstitious in her old age, which is very strange. Most of them go, you know, gets more and more superstitious. So there is this, uh, I, I, you must have heard about this too, about standing the egg on end, you know, yeah. at, 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 at equinox, the two equinox, at, oh, yeah. only at doing the equinox, you can stand the eggs on end. Yeah, we've talked about and, and that. And I yeah. said, you know, I, and I, I look at it and I said, there's no physics behind this, why it has to be so. And that I'm sure if you have steady hands, you could do it anywhere. But of course, in the Chinese family, you don't go around telling your mom, you're wrong, right? It's just right. not done. So, but every time she brings it up, and so, you know, twice a year, you know, Octonal Econos, Vernal Econos, she would spend a lot of time sitting in the kitchen and standing egg on end. She succeeds and say, hey, you know, it works. I said, yeah, I said, sometimes you should try it when it's any time of the day you feel like it, any time of the year, try it, right? So one day I went to visit her and she was sitting on the kitchen floor and she had three eggs lined up sitting upright. <laughs> and she goes, you're right, I could do it any time. I go, wow. <laughs> Of empirical evidence. So I go, that's hope yet for you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so just to clarify, you said you, you were raised in Borneo? Yes, I was raised in the, I was born in Hong Kong, and our family moved to Borneo when I was uh, about three or four years old. But uh, we were, you know, a Chinese family, and there are a lot of Chinese in Malaysia and Borneo. So we're pretty much a, a Chinese community. I see. Did, have you, did you ever live in mainland China? No, but I've visited a few times, and I've uh, been to Hong Kong quite a lot. Uh, to, the mainland China is so close even to the Chinese. I mean, if you want to understand Hong Kong, I mean, China, and know what's going on, if you hang out in Hong Kong, you find a lot more about China than in China itself. I see. I'm interested to ask you about this, and we actually have chatted about this before. Right. You you listened to the episode where we interviewed uh, Gareth Hayes, who was an Australian business consultant working in China, right? Right. And that was a, one of our more controversial episodes because some of our listeners thought that maybe we were being unfair or we were taking what Gareth was saying uh, uncritically. So I'm very interested to get an independent opinion from somebody who – you know, was raised in that culture. What, what did you think about the uh, the characterization of China that, that Gareth was putting forward? I think he was more correct than he thought he is. And I think uh, he's being very kind in some of the statistics he's, he's giving. Wow. I mean, it's actually a lot worse than what he's saying. Is that right? It's my feeling from all my... Any friends and relatives I have who have done business in China, you know, and because they're from the... Uh, from West or they're from Hong Kong, they even know a lot more of the awful things that goes on in, in China. See, the problem with China is that it is still a very close society. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't let any statistics out. For example, they, they had a uh, lot of uh, mining accidents that we were finding out. The journalists trying to find it out got kicked out of the country. You can't even ask these questions. And the reason for that is, again, a Chinese cultural thing. And I think by and large Asia, but China especially, or Chinese in particular, is the aspect of faith, very thin skin, right? You have to, if you show people you did something wrong or you admit that there's something wrong, you're losing faith. Mm -hmm. So in a government or, or a bunch of people who are, are not willing to admit that something's wrong, you're going to have problems. Mm -hmm. So last year, for example, you, you remember the uh, crisis with the food? They have 
food products that are right. that sent back because it didn't you know it suddenly people start checking them and yep. find out that it did not live up to standards and so on and it right. found they found out and internally when that thing start coming out internally they were starting to report to come out unofficially about children in school being poisoned children in boarding school being poisoned by the food and so on and this report was trickling out to Hong Kong mm-hmm. and finally there was so much of it and so much bad press about the food. In July, they executed the head of their FDA. Right. Wow. They killed him? They executed him. That's right. I heard that, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah. They executed him to make a show of it because now he has brought shame onto the country. Not because, you know, they, 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 you know the, the, he was uh, convicted for corruption, right. for mm-hmm. receiving money from big uh, food uh, product companies and, and, and turning, you know, the other way. Well, you know, he's the head of the FDA. He's not the one personally inspecting food. There are lots of other inspectors. Right. But he's a fall guy. He's a scapegoat. Okay. But he's the fall guy, right? But the reason, and the reason giving is it's corruption and so on, but the, the, re- the real reason is, you know, they were, it, it's a way of taking away the shame. I mean, he has brought shame to the country. As long as that attitude persists, uh, China will not change very much. So you, you mentioned before that when things like this happen, reports trickle out to Hong Kong, and that's the primary avenue of news and information to the West. But how reliable do you think that is? Do you think there's a lot of misinformation and rumors that's also mixed in? Yeah, but most of it, there is, uh, for people, uh, here's my advice to anyone who's uh, going to uh, take a job in China or be posted in China by the company. You need to subscribe to Far East Economic Review. Mm-hmm. They have the best information about China. Their offices get closed by the government very frequently for reporting things too good. <laughs> Everything I hear from my relatives and, and business and coming out, you know, within a week, you read about it in Friday's Economic Review. I see. So, the, but they're constantly just keeping one step ahead of the government, who's constantly who's shutting down their offices. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they 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 have all kinds of sources and so on. I mean, it's it's one of these things where they are so sensitive about information that make them even. And sometimes you don't think it's so bad, but they think it's bad. Mm-hmm. You know, some, so uh, a new uh, bridge opened up. Uh, as soon as it opened, there was a couple of accidents because the, the traffic signs weren't put in right. You know, sort of, you know it's funny. You know, it, and everybody uh, you know, know that they just start building the highways and so on system. The, the, you know, the highway technology and so on is, is not quite you know, California yet, but they're trying. So you know, there's some of these errors. I mean, even in California, we have some goofy things happen to us it's like oh well it's a learning process but to them it's a shame mm-hmm. and even things like that they want to cover up so is it changing in into in a better direction or is it becoming worse very slowly it's it, as long as they are more interested in covering it up than than, than admitting to it and change then it will the change will be slow Right. I mean, we oh. in the West change so fast is that every time something awful happens, we do an analysis on it, right? We do an autopsy on it. We're very open about trying to figure out what went wrong. That is why I think that the Olympics is good for them, right? Because if there's enough visitors going there, the visitors will bring in information from the outside. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah. and I hope the people going in there are more honest about the evaluation and say, hey, this is good, this is bad, and so on, and, and let the locals know what they're up against. Things are changing, but very slowly. Yeah, you see the change in the infrastructure. Yeah, they have nice buildings. They have now freeways and so on, and cars are now taking over the bicycles and so on. But that's all superficial. I mean, deep in the, the very heart of the 
uh, system is, is still pretty much the same. Well, yeah, man, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And so right now you're just working at your job as an engineer, right? Yes. And you're going to do that unless the skeptologist gets picked up and becomes a big hit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> it, it has to pay a lot for me to, uh, cause, uh, to, to be able to pay my bills, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, he's not yeah, cheap, well, nobody, Steve. I mean, come on. Nobody knows it's going to happen. Um, but So you're going to TAM6, right? Well, I'm, I'm hoping if I, I already have a previous engagement as a survivor-related engagement uh, that weekend, but if I can get out of it, I certainly would come to TAM6, yeah. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, we'd love to see you there. All right, take care, yeah, man. Hope to see you again soon. Thanks, yeah, man. Yeah, thanks a lot. Great interview. Thank you, you for having me. Bye. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is contrary to prior belief. These are all news items which run contrary to what was previously believed. Ready? Let's see. Item number one. New research finds that naturally occurring trans fats actually reduce risk factors for heart disease. Item number two. New DNA analysis shows that the first humans in North America, the Clovis, were not the ancestors of later American Indians and may have come from Northern Europe. Item number three, new National Science Foundation data shows that the supply of science, engineering, and health workers in the U.S. is increasing, and as are new graduates, who also contain more than 50% women. Uh, Jay, go first. The naturally occurring trans... Fats actually reduce the risk factors for heart disease. That's one of those things. Yeah, maybe it reduces some risk factors and still increases others. Second one was uh, the DNA analysis. The Clovis. That was the first. That's what we call the first uh, humans in North America. That's correct. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe you should go with that one then. No. <laughs> Shut what up. Do, what does it make sense? Um. New DNA analysis shows that the first humans in North America, the <laughs> yep. Clovis, were not the ancestors of later American Indians and may have come from Northern Europe. Didn't everybody come over from the land bridge from Northern Europe? Remember the theme? Columbus the, didn't. Remember the theme, Jay? Contrary to prior belief. Okay. And the third one, uh, new NSF data shows that the supply of science, engineering, and health workers in the U.S. is increasing as are new graduates who also contain... More than fifty percent women. I think that one is a hundred percent wrong. I think that they're decreasing. I'm going to go with that one as as the fake. Okay, Rebecca. I disagree. I think that I think that the number of women have has been rising. More than fifty percent. Not sure, but it's certainly believable. I also believe that trans fats could be good for you because everything bad is good for you, and vice versa. So. I'm going to go with the DNA analysis of the first humans in North America. I think that that's fiction, even though I don't really know much about the subject at all. So, yeah, I'm going with that one. Okay, Bob? Okay, the trans fat, I think the key the key term here is naturally occurring. Perhaps, I'm not sure, perhaps the trans fat that everyone's freaking out about um, have been, uh, I don't know, artificially hydrogenated or something. Uh, to make it 
bad, but the naturally occurring stuff isn't, you know, might actually not be as bad as we thought, possibly. All right, the third one, the, maybe they're not necessarily graduating from uh, our universities. Maybe they're coming from other countries. Um, and the 50%, yeah, that does sound a little high for the women, but I think I'm going to agree with Rebecca and, and say that the Clovis one, uh, I think that one is fiction. Okay, Evan? Yeah, I'll agree. Clove, I, I think the Clovis is fiction uh, for a lot of the same reason Bob, a lot of the same conclusions Bob came to in all of this. And number three, the NSF data, I think that is the curveball there. I, w- I think I might have said that, but health workers in the U.S. is increasing. But right, not you know people from the United States. Certainly there are people coming in from outside the United States to fill these important jobs and Therefore, it's on the rise. So I think that's the curveball. Clovis is fiction. Okay, so you all agree that new research finds that naturally occurring trans fats actually reduce risk factors for heart disease. And that is science. Mm. And, and yeah. Bob, you are correct. The, the magic phrase was naturally occurring, which there are some trans fats that do naturally occur in meat and dairy products. And that has been found to actually perhaps reduce the risk factor for heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. Just a little bit of background. So, you know, fatty acids um, uh, have various amounts of, uh, at, the, lo- at the, the different locations, can have various amounts of hydrogen. That's what all of the terms are referring to, how many of the places where you could have a hydrogen are actually filled with the hydrogen. The most healthful fatty acids are those that are unsaturated, meaning that the sp- the hydrogen locations do not con- do not have hydrogens on them. So rather than having a hydrogen, there's a double bond instead on, on the, the carbon backbone. So unsaturated fats, meaning there are locations that where there aren't hydrogens are are healthful. The saturated fats are the one where they're where they're mainly filled with or they're completely filled with uh, hydrogen are the ones that are not healthy. And the trans fats are ones where you have locations that were empty of hydrogen and then hydrogen's been added. Now, sometimes these can occur naturally, but if you manufacture them by starting with an unsaturated fat and then hydrogenate them, adding hydrogen to those locations, then you create a trans fat or a hydrogenated fat. You should always watch out when you read hydrogenated. And those have been associated with increased risk factors for heart disease, but these naturally occurring trans fats may actually reduce the risk. The reason why all this makes sense is because it's not just how much fat or cholesterol is in your body. It's what it's doing. Some like there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. There's good there's good fat and there's bad fat, uh, and this naturally occurring trans fat actually uh, increases the production of uh, key um, components of fat metabolism that help you know move fat around to where it's supposed to go. So you end up with less fat and cholesterol being absorbed and deposited on the blood vessel walls, for example. I don't know about you guys, but when I order French fries, I always get them with extra hydrogen. Absolutely. I ask them to sprinkle hydrogen, hydrogen jimmies on top of my ice cream. You just like you want it dripping off of the uh, the mm-hmm. fries, right? Hence the word hydrogenated, right? Yes, the hydrogen makes it yummy. I think we need a petition against hydrogen. That's what it is. Ban hydrogen, just in general. Yeah. <laughs> Big H with a circle and a red line through it. Let's take these in order. Please do. So item number two is new DNA analysis shows that the first humans in North America, the Clovis, were not the ancestors of late, later American Indians and may have come from Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. And that is the fiction. That one is fiction. Woo. Sounds right. Yeah. 
No. Uh, in that you were wrong? Yes. No, I knew that there was something wrong with that one. Uh, what's wrong with that one is that there's <laughs> yes. new DNA evidence that shows the exact opposite. The quickie background is that the, the current model that we have of the, the peopling of the Americas is that you know, the earliest evidence is of a people called the Clovis people based upon the artifacts that were left at Clovis, New Mexico, the key feature of which is this fluted um, spear point. So there's like a little shaft in the middle where you would put it onto uh, the, the spear and tie it around. Uh, yeah, so it's a very distinctive, you know, method of making these spear points and and you could that helps you track them all over you know where they settled in North America they're here from around 14,000 to around 12,000 years ago or or 11,000 then they disappear and then the the people who are essentially the ancestors of modern American Indians appear and their presence is permanent so the question's always been wh- where did the Clovis people come from what happened to them did they breed with the, uh, the 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 settlements that were clearly ancestors to modern American Indians there there was even some hypotheses that maybe rather than coming through the Siberian land bridge maybe they came across the North Atlantic ice sheet you know basically sailing along the edge of the ice sheet in the, lo- the North Atlantic um, ice fishing along the way or something like that. What they did was uh, DNA analysis of he- fossilized human feces found in deep caves of the Oregon desert. This was done by Professor Eski Willerslev. And Coprolite? Yep, yeah. that's right. And they also carbon dated it. Hmm. And they found that this the human feces came from 14,340 years ago, which pushes, pushes back the age of the oldest humans a bit by a few hundred years. This creates a little bit of a problem because it pushes it back to before the time when we think that the the land bridge across the Bering Strait was open, which means that either that date is wrong or these people came across some other way. They didn't just walk across the land bridge. Maybe they had to like actually sail or walk along the coast, uh, for example. But that's a minor problem. But what it also shows is that these people, now this is now the earliest people, so this is Clovis or pre-Clovis, the, they had clear genetic markers that are unique to modern American Indians. So they clearly contributed you know, genetic material to the people who you know, eventually became American Indians. And it showed that their continental genetic stock was Asian. So these were Asians who eventually became American Indians. They were not European. They were not African. So that pretty much kills the whole European or African theories of where um, the, the first Americans came from. They definitely came from Asia, and they definitely you know, it bred with or became um, the American Indians. You know, a neat little addition to that whole story of trying to piece together the first peopling of the Americas. Which means that new NSF data shows that the supply of science, engineering, and health workers in the U.S. is increasing, as are new graduates who also contain more than 50% women, and that is science. This is based on several studies done by the National Science Foundation, um, and they found out that the supply of scientists and engineers and health workers has been increasing that more people are going into those studies and, are, and, are, and more are graduating from them in the United States. This is not just an influx from the outside. This is people going into American uh, schools with these degrees and graduating more people and therefore increasing the workforce. That's great news. That's it reassuring. Is. And, uh, and the greater the 50% women, that is largely coming from the, uh, the health workers. Women now outnumber men in medical school, for example. And uh, if you project that out uh, before too long, women physicians will outnumber male physicians. In science and engineering, you know, 
discipline to discipline, there's still many, many sub-disciplines where there are more men than women. But when you add in the health workers, and if you take a look at the whole, that all the numbers, there's more than 50% women in all three of those combined. So that's, uh, that is actually a bit of encouraging news, and, and hopefully this will be indicative of a, of, of a trend, you know, that, that, um, you know, that are sort of reinvigorating the sciences, and not just in this country, but more broadly, because we definitely need it. I mean, you know, the human civilization is increasingly dependent upon science and engineering, and if we don't have just the raw human material uh, and intellectual material to keep those going, you know, we'll, civilization will suffer. That's the bottom line. Okay, well, so well done, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Everyone but Jay. Yeah, but Jay, that goes without saying. Well, Jay did all right. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. I have a quote. I actually have one. Uh, I have a quote that, that I found that I thought um, is kind of funny because of stuff we talked about in the show today. This is a quote from Rene Descartes. De omnibus dubitandum. All is to be doubted. Doubt everything. And who, and who said that? Rene Descartes! <laughs> there you, go. you guys, I have to say it now. I wasn't going to do it. Don't keep us hanging. You can't keep us hanging. <laughs> yeah, and now it's a thing, Jay. Jay. You got to okay. say it. Yeah, we need our weekly game. fix. Well, thank you, one and all, for another great show. Had a good time. So we have some we have some general announcements. We do. I do want to I did want to point out that in the past week, uh, an icon of our culture has passed. Despite what you might think about his politics later in life, Charlton Heston was, you know, especially for us younger growing up, was in every great science, crappy science fiction movie that we saw. Mm-hmm. Soylent Green, The Omega Man. Soylent Green, Planet, Planet of the Apes, Apes The Omega Planet Man. Apes. And he had the single best Ten line yep. in all of cinema. Oh, Steve, are you going to play it or can I say it? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play it. Cool. Play awesome. It. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a great line. How cool was he, man? It's a classic. It is something. Um, but, you know, more important than that, uh, Rupert Sheldrake got stabbed. That's right. That's right. Oh. Nobody predicted it. What happened? Why would somebody stab him? He was giving some talk about making things happen by staring at people, and some guy was staring at so him he from the side of the out? stage and then ran up and stabbed him. Yeah, I don't know. That's terrible. Wow. But anyway, really, we wish him that's the best. That's sick. I mean, this guy's given, you know, as much, as much as we don't agree with him, I mean, the guy's doing his thing. He's giving a talk, and someone comes up and stabs him. Oh, my God. I mean, I worry about that, too, even though whether you're at the believer end or the skeptical end, when you're dealing with topics like this, you do yeah. worry that there's just some lunatic with a loose re, you know, relationship with reality out in the audience who feels like they have to, you know, stab you in order to... You know, Gee, whatever. Make a point or whatever. <laughs> to do whatever is make a point. Whatever's going on in their head. One quick announcement is uh, I've set up the next Boston Skeptics in the Pub. We're going to have Mark Abrams, who many of our listeners have heard on this very show. He's the guy who runs the Ig Nobel Awards and blogs at improbable uh, dot mm-hmm. com. I think. And uh, yeah, that'll be April 21st, Monday. Also at the same place it was last month. More info at bostonskeptics.com. Cool. Um, so things are, are moving forward with the web project. I've selected uh, the person that I want to work with uh, that's going to help me run the project, and then we're going to farm it out to as many people as we can. And hopefully uh, my goal is to try to get it done before TAM6. Good, because the website's getting crusty. Yeah, it is crusty. It's it's, oh, yeah. it's going up on, Moldy. I think, what, two years now, right? 
We have so many, so much functionality we've been meaning to add to it, but, so we're looking forward to the changes. I'm going to add in the SGU uh, books link very soon, um, so everyone keep an eye out for that. Hopefully within a week or so, maybe even uh, before the show airs, I can get that done. I want to make one more um, skeptical meetup announcement too. April 19th, those of you in the UK should definitely check out an evening with James Randi and friends. It's going to be in London, and it's going to feature James Randi, Richard Wiseman, Simon Singh, Chris French, Ben Goldacre, and Susan Blackmore. And that's all for 11 pounds. That's nuts. And you are insane if you miss out on it. Link on the, the notes page will probably be the easiest thing to do. Well, thanks again, guys. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 